Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our program, Sharing Patchwork, centers on a new exhibition at the Mathers Museum of World Cultures at Indiana University called The Quilts of Southwest China. The music for our program will highlight traditional instruments used in Southwest China, and we'll begin with the Bawu, played by Guo Yui. The Bawu likely originated in the Yunnan province of Southwest China. It has become a standard instrument throughout China, used in modern Chinese compositions for traditional instrument ensembles. Quilts of Southwest China was organized by a binational consortium of Chinese and American museums, including the Mathers Museum, that has worked together to document and research these textiles, art forms dating back over 3,000 years, but little known outside certain ethnic minority communities in China, featuring 24 works expertly fashioned, patched, and appliqued together to form artistic yet functional textiles. The exhibition presents research and collecting that provides some of the first documentation of the making and use of these textiles. With me in the studio are Li Jun Zhang, research curator at the Guangxi Museum of Nationalities in Guangxi, China. She holds a PhD in folklore from Indiana University. She's the co-curator of this exhibition and has edited, along with Marsha McDowell, an accompanying catalog highlighting the exhibition. Welcome, Li Jun. Thank you for having me. Also with us, Timothy Lloyd has served as executive director of the American Folklore Society since 2001. Before coming to the Society, Lloyd served as Executive Director of City Folk, a nonprofit folk arts presenting organization in Dayton, Ohio. Before that, he was Assistant Director of the American Folk Life Center at the Library of Congress. His research interests include American foodways, occupational culture, and the history of public practice in the field of folklore. Welcome, Tim. Thank you. Glad to be here. And Jason Bear Jackson, director of the Mathers Museum of World Cultures and professor of folklore and anthropology at Indiana University. He is a folklorist and ethnologist whose teaching and research work bridges the fields of folklore, cultural anthropology, linguistic anthropology, ethnohistory, and museum studies. Welcome, Jason. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you. Now, this is our first show under the government of the Trump administration, and it seems appropriate to me as we've discovered Trump. President Trump wants to wall out the world, heighten police powers, and restrict or eliminate altogether arts funding. This project, a collaboration with the Chinese Folklore Society, got some of its funding from the National Endowment for the Humanities. That's right. But we should also note much of the funding also comes from private foundations, and another unique aspect of American culture, probably. Mm. Yes. <laughs> Let me say that 
Patchwork or quilt strikes me as a far superior metaphor of that tired one we use in the U.S. of the melting pot. In one, we lose everything about ourselves, our histories, even our geographies, to become a bland thing, a pork that's uniformly pinkish-gray. With the quilt or patchwork, the metaphor and the practice becomes us. It's a history and not an erasure. So let's begin with impetus and origins. Tim, can you give us some background about this long-term project? Sure. The American Folklore Society is the scholarly association for folklorists, um, uh, an international association headquartered here in the U.S. and, in fact, headquartered here on the IU campus in Bloomington. Since 2007, we've been working with the China Folklore Society and with a number of other organizations in our field, both here in the U.S. and in China, on a, on a series of collaborations that have been funded, like you said, uh, by primarily by the Henry Luce Foundation in New York and by government uh, and private sources in the U.S. and, uh, and in China. Uh, the last few years in particular, we have worked, uh, we have brought together a group of six ethnographic museums, three from the U.S., including the Mathers Museum here, three in China, provincial ethnographic museums like the one that Li Zhun works, works for, uh, to get to know one another personally and professionally, the leadership staffs of those organizations, and to work together on a, on a project uh, that has culminated in this exhibition of, uh, of quilts. Uh, the United States supports the arts and culture. I mean, the United States government supports the arts and culture primarily through the National Endowment for the Humanities, National Endowment for the Arts. In China, uh, the government supports uh, arts and culture generally, but they also have a major emphasis on what is called intangible cultural heritage. Uh, and uh, China was one of the first countries to sign on to UNESCO's Convention, International Treaty for Intangible Cultural Heritage, and have been very active in this in this realm. And of the government of China has devoted uh, many millions of dollars in the U.S. equivalent to uh, to support of this work. Hmm. Well, uh, how did you get involved, uh, Li Jun, uh, with this project? Um, I I was uh, like a graduate student at Indiana University, and um, first I got involved in the project as sort of from the U.S. side <laughs> at the beginning. Um, and then I participated in the China-U.S. Um, forum on the intangible cultural heritage and, um, and, and museum uh, theories and practice at the um, in Santa Fe, uh, organized co-organized by the American Folklore Society and Chinese Folklore Society, and then um, after the conference. I it was the time I I was graduating so and uh, I fortunately I got a um, curator job position at Guangxi Museum of Nationalities and since then I get more involved in the whole project because I was um, the major co coordinator on the China side mm. um, after I was hired by the museum. Mm. So, um, yeah, I was coordinating the work within uh, my museum um, between the three Chinese museums as well as between the Chinese museums and the American museums. Mm. Um, also, the, um, I cur curated, co-curated the 
uh, exhibition with Masha and um, um, edited the catalog with Masha. So I was in charge of the um, acquisition of the, the editing of the um, essays from those Chinese essay contributors. Mm. Excellent. And Jason, how does the Mathers come in? Uh, the project that Tim was describing and that Lejeune has contributed to um, in the recent period, we were invited um, to be one of the three U.S. museums, which was going to, in essence, take up a new track of work within the project. So we were joined by the Museum of International Folk Art in Santa Fe and the Michigan State University Museum at the University at Michigan State. And uh, so from 2013 to 2016, um, we've hosted conferences, had professional exchanges. Um, we've visited um, communities in the United States as well as in Southwest China. And then we've um, worked on this exhibition and catalog together. Um, so it's been a great opportunity for the Mathers to extend its work internationally in a new way. Um, and certainly China is a very, um, the culture is very rich. And um, in terms of the, the life of the world, a great place mm -hmm. for Americans to learn more about. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, do I, can I assume that as a part of the American Folklore Society, which is it housed here? Yes, it yeah. is. Uh, that there was something that would have been a Mathers, uh, of Mathers' interest from the beginning? or That's a you... really interesting question. Certainly, um, the project was of great interest to the museum the minute that the opportunity to join it came along. Um, Tim can uh, tell a bit of side story here for Bloomington audiences. When we began, though, in um, this work uh, officially in 2000. 13, um, the American Folklore Society was headquartered not in Bloomington, but at the Ohio State University in Columbus. Oh. Um, so it was a bit of a long distance relationship when we began, um, but we've gotten physically closer since then. Is there a story to tell, Tim? Yeah, well, I think so, yes. Um, Jason's right. The, the AFS uh, had been headquartered for a number of years at the Ohio State campus in Columbus. But because of this project, which connected us very closely to the Mathers and to the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology here at IU, and also some other projects that we've been doing on scholarly communication and folklore studies with the IU Library, that have brought some success and some attention. Uh, there grew up the desire between the College of Arts and Sciences here in IU and AFS for us to have an cl even closer working relationship. And the way that sorted out after a lot of negotiation was that it, it made sense for us to move the organization's offices here. So mm. we moved in the summer of 2015. So we've been here about a year and a half now. Oh, okay. But it's been great because we now can continue all this work on Part, the, the partnerships related to China that we're talking about today and other ones uh, in a much more sort of convenient and efficient way because we're across campus rather than across state lines. Hmm. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. We're speaking today about the quilts of Southwest China, art forms dating back over 3,000 years. So, uh, so obviously, China is. Uh, I often think most countries for Americans, and I'm when I say Americans, I'm speaking for myself generally. <laughs> where you imagine that the world exists outside of where you live, but in such a uh, sort of amorphous, strange way, frequently, right? You just don't quite understand that the world is out there unless you go there frequently. Even on maps, you have no idea what you're looking at generally, right? So Southwest China is a, uh, a particular uh, region, but is, uh, I assume is also a massive region. Um, so where is Southwest China in particular? Yeah, I think you are right. 
right, China is massive and it's really like culturally diverse, um, geographically enormous, and also diverse. So for this, what we mean Southwest China, um, um, for this project, it's the uh, Guangxi province, Yunnan province, and Guizhou province. Um, these three um, provinces are geographically adjacent to each other. It's on the southwest border of the, um, the Chinese nation. And uh, they, we are close to Vietnam. Mm. And to Thailand, mm. yeah, well, on the so a lot the of the side. the ethnic um, yeah, uh, it's will cross over these borders as well. Yes, okay. right. Mm-hmm. Um, we have like the mom ethnic group, both in China and in Thailand, and they have the same origins. So this this area in China, this area is ethnically most diverse and culturally most rich mm. um, region. And in Yunnan province, there are 26 ethnic groups and uh, permanent, as permanent residents mm. there. And in Guizhou province, there are 18 ethnic groups. And in Guangxi province, there are uh, 11 ethnic groups. Mm. And to build on what Lejeune was just saying, it- the Chinese government designates officially 56 is yes. it? officially designated minority cultural groups. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact is, it's more com- it's even more complicated than that because there are right. other groups that that don't have official designation but certainly exist. What's the majority mm-hmm. cultural group? The majority oh. is the Han huh. ethnic group, which um, composes about over ninety seven percent of oh, the whole population. Yeah, okay. I think, yeah, and. Yeah. Um, mm. Yeah, go back to Tim's um, topic of destination. I mean, even within the same uh, ethnic group, there are like subgroups, hmm. like uh, in Guangxi province. Um, there are, uh, for example, for the Yao ethnic groups, we have many different as, uh, subgroups within the Yao category of governmental designated. Ethnic groups. There's white trousers, Yao. There's like flat hats, Yao. Yeah. Mm. Most of these like subgroups, Yao subgroups are named after the feature of their costumes oh. because mm. yeah, um, clothing is a, a major way and textiles as well is a major way to um, like identify. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, ethnic groups and so uh, a lot of ethnic people they um, associate their identity with their like uh, textile style mm. uh, textile features in this region mm. so you can tell one group from the other from their um, costume mm-hmm. Uh, or from their textile mm. tradition. Just, yeah, go ahead, Jason. When <clears throat> as Americans who are, as you were suggesting, usually unaware of the details of cultural life in a faraway land, um, it's been a positive experience for us, and we try to share this in the exhibition too, um, to, to learn about some of the history that shapes the diversity that Tim and Lejeune are speaking of. Um, on the one hand, when anthropologists look around the world at cultural diversity, one of the things that they notice is that mountainous regions often 
oftentimes promote cultural diversity. Mm. When you visit Southwest China, it's so beautiful. And one of the features that um, is uh, found in that region are um, beautiful uh, but very rugged and elaborate mountain ranges. Um, and uh, from a deep history point of view, that's one of the factors that shaped all the, the uh, distinctive and small uh, cultural groups that Li Jun is talking about. But then the, the more modern history relating to the way that the government has um, organized national policy around cultural difference and minority identity, that's also an equally powerful kind of shaping factor on that world that is unfamiliar to you and I. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I hardly know where to begin asking questions about it, right? So mountainous regions keep people in places, basically. You can't really right. do much but stay where you are. There's that angle, but there's also scholarship that increasingly points out that um, mountain regions are places where people go in times of difficulty. They go hide. They go hide, they run, right? Run yeah, to the hills, yeah, that, yeah. right? That's yeah. Definitely, yeah. definitely true for a lot of ethnic groups in, in this region. Um, yeah, they are some of the groups. They they are more like underrepresented mm -hmm. groups, and yeah, uh, histor historically they are like weaker mm -hmm. than the like uh, majority ethnic mm -hmm. groups in that region. So they a lot of historically a lot of them were driven to the mountainous area mm -hmm. because of war, mm -hmm. because of like uh, resource competition. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Yeah, we had um, Jim Scott was in here and we talked a little bit about yeah. the mountainous regions. He's one of the, the theorists of the matter that we're, we're talking about in a kind of uh, everyday walk down the village path sort of way. But <laughs> mm -hmm. the, the idea that he's um, evoking in his scholarship is um, the one that um, we see evidence of, for instance, in the quilts on the walls of the mm -hmm. Mathers Museum, right? That um, there's little glimpses of a deep history there. Mm -hmm. It's time for a break. The musical instrument we'll highlight is the Xing, a Chinese mouth-blown free reed instrument consisting of vertical pipes. It's one of the oldest Chinese instruments dating back to 1100 BCE. More with Li Junjiang, Tim Lloyd, and Jason Bear Jackson about the quilts of Southwest China when Interchange returns on WFHB.
Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. We're speaking today about the quilts of Southwest China, art forms dating back over 3,000 years. My guests are Li Jun Zhang, who is curating the exhibition, Tim Lloyd, director of the American Folklore Society, and Jason Baird Jackson, director of the Mathers Museum. In this segment, we'll talk about intangible cultural heritage. In China, in 2011, the national government provided an amount that was roughly $300 million U.S. to support intangible cultural heritage. This is equivalent to what the U.S. federal government spends for the National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities combined. So, Jason, you mentioned uh, that you the quilts are a way in which we can kind of read the history of, of of people in their in their environment and their culture and their um, and uh, Lee Jun, earlier you mentioned a thing called was it intangible cultural heritage as well and I assume there's tangible cultural heritage as well so uh, maybe this is a good time to kind of understand what those those things mean what's an intangible cultural heritage and what's versus tangible okay yeah it's like quilt as a very distinctive form of folk art Mm. it's both tangible and intangible so for the intangible part most of it refers to the knowledge, skills um, related to the uh, production of those quilts. Uh, also refers to like the cultural meanings, cultural symbols, um, the like uh, f- folk beliefs mm-hmm. um, related to the quilts, including the the design and patterns of those mm. quilts. So, um, Necessary uh, to understand the quilt. Yes, and, 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 and then in a way it's tangible. You mm-hmm. can see the textiles and touch it, mm-hmm. feel it, and use it in your daily life. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, for the intangible part, um, making quilts requires uh, we call an ecosystem of knowledge and skills mm-hmm. because um, in Southwest China, um, a lot of people still, they, they weave the, they make threads from homegrown cotton mm-hmm. and then they weave fabric with those threads and, and then they dye the uh, fabric mm-hmm. at home. So for dyeing the fabrics, it requires the knowledge of like uh, the plants which can be used to produce pigment mm-hmm. and the skills of dyeing. Also, like for the weaving, it requires the skill of making looms and the weaving machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, also there's uh, like embroidery and patchwork. Mm-hmm. F- um, on the quilts, which requires the skills of paper cutting. Mm-hmm. And some of those uh, paper cutting patterns are made by the quilt make artists themselves. Mm-hmm. Some are purchased from a spe- a specific like paper cutting artists. So it's like, uh, we call it an ecosystem mm-hmm. yeah, of sense. knowledge and mm-hmm. skills. So mm-hmm. that's like uh, the, the intangible part. Mm-hmm. Also, the tangible part as well, the plants, the loom, mm-hmm. and everything, the material they used 
in this process. Tim? When we talk about intangible cultural heritage, we're, I mean, that's, a, that's not a phrase that's in most folks' everyday vocabulary. Right? Yeah. Uh, you don't have occasion to use it much in everyday life, but we're referring usually to a convention, which is UNESCO speak for an international treaty, uh, that, that UNESCO, the United States uh, Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, passed and a number of nations have signed on to, though notably not the U.S., uh, to protect and safeguard intangible cultural heritage. That convention, I think, was passed in 2003. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And to confuse things a little bit, the, the convention about intangible cultural heritage includes in its scope tangible cultural heritage, too. In other words, it's not like Lejeune was saying. It's not there's the knowledge to make the quilt or to play the musical instrument, but then there's the musical instrument itself uh, and the and the the quilt or the textile work itself. So the mm. tangible and intangible are all covered by this. And what most countries do is uh, work with UNESCO to set up a system of research and study and evaluating different cultural expressions, like the ones that are in the exhibition here at the Mathers. Um, uh, to sort of judge what is uh, what cultural expressions, what folk arts, what folk performing arts will be uh, designated as sort of official examples of that regions or that localities or that country's official intangible cultural heritage. And there's kind of a nomination and review process that happens, and it goes all the way up to the international level. So mm-hmm. UNESCO itself has maintains a list. Um, that, that is added to over time yeah. uh, by uh, of of sort of official international mm-hmm. uh, examples of uh, of intangible cultural mm-hmm. heritage. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. We're speaking today about the quilts of Southwest China, art forms dating back over three thousand years. It strikes me uh, there's um I think it's a place where we've saved all the seeds of the world, right? So it strikes yeah. me as that's that's a, a parallel organization in a sense, right? Yeah, Jason. I mean, uh, we're coming up on an interesting and key distinction, um, which is change. Mm-hmm. Um, if we go to a village in southwest China, there is change underway. Mm-hmm. Um, how people uh, make the bed is changing. Mm-hmm. Um, at an international level, with respect to cultural policy, things are changing as well. And we've been trying to track both kinds of change in the way they interact with one another. Mm-hmm. Your seed bank example is a really good one because it, it evokes um, a conundrum that we face um, in the seed. We continue with the seed analogy. In one theory, we come up with a technology which lets us put seeds in some kind of um, deep ice. Um, so someday we'll pull them out and use them again. Mm-hmm. Another theory of seed preservation says we need gardeners to plant these seeds year after year so that they stay vital and available to us. If we carry that um, distinction into the um, the case of uh, textiles or bedding, um, quilted bedding from southwest China, for instance, um, all the museums could collect up all of the known examples in a condition of change, put them in their storerooms and preserve them. Right. Um, 
but the tradition might go away out in the world. Mm -hmm. Another theory would be um, what kinds of environmental or ecological circumstances would enable a tradition in changing times to be revitalized or sustained or, or remain part of the life of a community out of which it comes? Those are some of the questions we've yeah. been thinking about. Well, it, yeah. it struck me as I was reading a lot of the, the things that you actually, the links that you sent me from the, uh, the American Folklore Society on this particular topic, the intangible cultural heritage topic. I think at one point it says intended to sustain tradition-based culture. So in sustaining the culture, um, it's an attempt to, as you say, keep it vital. Um, so it's not so much just a collecting. It's, um, I don't know if it's promotional. I don't know if that's quite the right word, but it's uh, in some a, yeah, in a way to keep the, the thing happening uh, in whatever form it takes, but to make sure it stays a vital practice. Yeah. And these are debates in yeah. the, internationally to what extent. Whether to do it, it or not. Or, like to, how to or promote it. Or, 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 um, or how to. Different moral responses to the idea of change. I mean, we have colleagues in the world who see change as the problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We have other colleagues who say change is with us, whether it's we see it problematically or positively. Mm -hmm. How do we negotiate change in a way that's humane, that makes sense for local communities? But these are debates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the social circumstances for the tradition, uh, also for the, the intangible cultural heritage, is has um, has been changing. Yeah. Uh, as the society develops, so like for the textile tradition, a lot of artists they learn the skills um, naturally from like uh, the elder member mm -hmm. in their family or in the community. So it was learned more in a natural way. But now a lot of people uh, they because of social development and like the more commercially um, manufactured mm -hmm. um, textiles are available and the, the life pace is faster than, the, uh, than it, it was in a traditional community. So a lot of people, they don't have the time um, or the, the, the interest in ma making these textiles. So in modern society, I mean, at least in China, a lot of those skills are not learned in a traditional way. They are more learned in an institutional way. Hmm. Um, learn from like organized workshops, oh, okay. and sure. classes. Um, like we also, have yeah, yeah. Okay. students learned from traditional artists invited mm -hmm. to their class. So that's like a big change. Yeah, it struck me as part of um, you know part of the, a couple of pieces in here are addressing those that particular issue as yes. as life is changing as as things become I don't know these again I guess these are terminologies we have to walk around or try to understand what what we see as uh, uh, existing uh, social ways of practice here which. Um, I'm not sure how much craft or folk art is, as you say, some kind of um, historical practice, not and not a vital tradition in the sense of something you you pass on, you you make use of. It's part of your life. Uh, my my grandparents, my grandmother, her her mother made quilts, passed on quilts. Nobody makes quilts in my family anymore. Um, so there is that aspect of this as well. And I it it struck me. I wondered. If this is how humans pass time, generally, right? So how, 
we decide to be engaged in something other than just living, just eating, just surviving, when we have time to think things are pretty, um, is it more than that so much? Do you know, do you want to pass on maybe some cultural heritage, but in some senses as much engaging in the passage of time so that it's not just passing time, right? There's, yeah. a, there's the slow culture aspect of your question, right, which is um, – if you work three jobs, you're not going to have a lot of free time to devote to the making of elaborate things, particularly in an environment in which um, uh, there may be ready-made products available to you, which wasn't right. true in the past. <clears throat> On the other hand, uh, it's, it, we don't find societies which are um, completely uh, focused on only functional necessity. I mean, mm -hmm. that's an emergency condition that's not very sustainable. So that um, we live in a world in which people still have babies that they want to celebrate. They still have um, children who are married that they want mm -hmm. to recognize with the bestowal of a, mm -hmm. a special, beautiful gift. And so um, the world has changed, but um, the, that, that level above bare necessity still mm -hmm. is thankfully a part of most people's lives. Yeah, one of the best-known early folk art exhibitions in this country was titled Beyond Necessity, mm. yeah. along, along, those, uh, along those same lines. You know, yeah. we are talking about uh, change a minute ago. Uh, they're also interesting and sometimes uh, at odds with one another definitions of, of ownership that come into play here. I mean, we talk about, you know, the textile traditions of the Yao people or the textile traditions of the white trousers Yao people within, mm. you know, the larger Yao group. One of the problems that comes with the kind of des official designation of intangible cultural heritage like we're talking about is that ownership of something that might be diffused across a community, you know, large or small or in between, uh, can end up getting ascribed to a particular person or to a particular family. Uh, part of the designation of intangible cultural heritage for these rosters at various government levels uh, is that particular people get designated within that tradition as the names are different, but master artists and mm -hmm. official inheritors and so on. Um, and so a, a tradition that might be more widely shared uh, ends up being officially designated being the property of, of, of this woman mm -hmm. or this family. Mm -hmm. uh, and obviously that can complicate things where reality on the, on the, on the ground you know, is, is much more complicated than a simple designation of sort of official ownership mm -hmm. uh, you know, can provide. Mm -hmm. It's time for a break. Our highlighted Chinese musical instrument is the Luxing, made of multiple bamboo pipes, each fitted with a free reed, which are fitted into a long blowing tube made of hardwood. More with Li Jun Zhang, Tim Lloyd, and Jason Baird Jackson about the quilts of Southwest China when Interchange returns on WFHB.
Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. We're speaking today about the quilts of Southwest China, art forms dating back over 3,000 years, but little known outside certain ethnic minority communities in China. This is an exhibition currently at IU's Mathers Museum of World Cultures. My guests are Li Junjiang, who is curating the exhibition, Tim Lloyd, director of the American Folklore Society, and Jason Baird Jackson, director of the Mathers Museum. It struck me as, as I tried to think a little bit about China, again, a very difficult thing to kind of step in with your, with only one, one little toe maybe and try to understand. Mostly we hear about our own um, internet communications when it comes to freedom of, of expression, freedom of communication, et cetera, and how restrictive uh, this may be in China or to get outside of China. Uh, but it seems I wondered if this was part of a, a way in which we talk to each other. You know, when this is a cultural exchange that has a way of communicating across borders, uh, maybe not just officially, but other ways Two that you can convey certain aspects of your your life in China through through these cultural exchanges is that is that a part a part of what we're doing uh, when we do these things? Yes, and <clears throat> that unfolds at many different levels. Again, there's national level, the institutional level of museums connecting to museums, <clears throat> but I think most perhaps most um, emotionally rich um, would be. Um, the inherent change in projects like an exhibition like this. Um, Li Jun has experience interacting with face-to-face -face with artists, named artists whose um, quilts are represented in the exhibition. Mm. Um, you know, it's a very different thing to transition, but a pretty powerful one and pretty compelling to transition from making um, 
textiles, which, as would be the case with your grandmother's quilts, probably designed to keep the family warm, mm-hmm. to imagining your work hanging as an admired mm-hmm. creation on the wall of an of a museum on the other side of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, that I mean, that's a diff- that's a special kind of exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, Lejeune may want to tell some stories along those lines. Yeah, we we have an artist. Uh, who is a featured um, figure in, in one of our videos for mm. the exhibition. She She's a Zhuan. She belongs to a Zhuan nationalities. And she learned the quilting skill from her mother when she was um, 13, only 13 years old. Mm-hmm. So she has been making very beautiful um Quilts, including like bath covers, hats, and clothes, and um, now she's actually quite aware of the change of the world and the change of tradition in the society. So she had she has three children, two daughters and a son. She made a quilt for each of her um, her children. She said it's like a mementos. For them, yeah, so sure. that people in the future can see um, the the traditional art, also like the ethnic traditions mm-hmm. through his work. The, but also there's the tradition in the community that people make a quilt for for their children or relatives' weddings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she make one for her son's wedding, a wedding. But her her daughter-in-law and her son. They thought that it was this kind of traditional quilt was out of date. Hmm. So they they um so uh, she she still has the quilt in her house. <laughs> <laughs> and then we approached to her and uh, visited her. Said we are interested in collecting quilts from her, and she was very happy that uh, we. We were interested in her uh, art, mm-hmm. and we we want to acquire the quilt. Mm-hmm. So she gave it to us, and she she was even prouder when we told her you will go on exhibition in the United States, mm. and yeah, he his art will be shown to a larger audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, internationally. Yeah, that's a, a, another interesting aspect of it. As you say, you you move from the the personal to a, you know projecting your your cultural heritage on yeah. uh, on out into the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it I don't know like you say how a, how a, an artist responds to it, right? Be, becomes proud of it or I mean, sees it, it as something else. It means a lot to the traditional artists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's yeah. a. There's a further feedback loop. We can't predict what will happen in the story that Lejeune, the case that she described. I mean, I think most of us would derive a certain kind of pleasure in thinking that a sort of family disappointment turned into a personal yeah. creative yeah, triumph. Yeah, I wanted to clarify um, that the family was like, That's, that quilt is way out of date, Mom. Exactly. Yeah, right. so, yeah. so they gave Mom some grief, but then yeah. she got a, a special pleasure later on out of it. But yeah. there's a, another um, step which sometimes happens in instances like this where um, – Ten years ago, we were all rejecting a traditional art form, but now that it's an international sensation and our community should be proud, we see this all over the world where 
an artist or a creative person or a person who hangs on to a customer or a tradition longer than their neighbors, mm-hmm. the, the world circles around and they go from being on the edge of things mm-hmm. to being a hero for having kept the thing, which we now value again, mm-hmm. vital, mm-hmm. Um, or at least the pres- possibility of its revitalization. Um, we see this, for instance, in North America with indigenous uh, languages mm-hmm. where um, in many communities, a few people have pr- continued to speak their um, indigenous language. Now they're at the center of the community because they have this cultural knowledge, which is, which was being pushed aside, but that's now so appreciated. Yeah, yeah. it's a struggle with being a, a, a national culture that, that, as I said at the beginning, you know, flattens everything out and tries to erase it. It's easier to manage people if they're of of one mind, of one action. Of yeah, I mean that in a way, the fact that we are collecting the quilts for the museum and doing exhibition in the United States. Uh, will also contribute to the raising the awareness of the value of this kind of art mm-hmm. uh, within the family, the artist's family, and the community uh, as well. And they will see this is something valuable and something people appreciate mm-hmm. and cherish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of funny. It reminded me of, uh, you know, we had a conversation with John Kay in here not too long ago mm-hmm. and um, uh, the rug, uh, I forget the woman's name. Uh, unfortunately, those are fantastic rugs, but uh, how her own family responded to them was interesting in a similar kind of way. She's yeah. like, they, they, cre- they interestingly thought of her as not doing so well artistically. You know, like they judged her on her artistic merits versus, you know, the fact that she was doing these amazing, like making her own like actual materials and yeah. and, and making yeah. these amazing scenes. And they were like, well, it's not as great as it could be, Mom. You know, no. it's just such a weird response to it, right? Um, but I, I, I guess I understand. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. We're speaking today about the quilts of Southwest China, art forms dating back over 3,000 years. Is there a way in which you want the uh, museum goer to see this and realize that people are similar Oh, all over the world, right? <laughs> yeah. We have good examples of that. I mean, this is the um, this is the balance that our museum is always um, engaged with. On the one hand, um, we we have a mission statement which calls uh, on us to discover what's human, uh, what's common to the human experience. Not being cold at night when one sleeps <laughs> is um, part of the human um, commonality, I think. Um, but on the other hand, we have this goal of exploring and um, conveying some sense of the the rich um, patchwork of human cultures, to go back to your starting mm-hmm. metaphor, um, which is a very good one for this project. Mm-hmm. Um, Lejeune's described the ways in which we've tried to, she and her colleagues, our colleagues, have tried to make the exhibition um, dynamic and people-centered, not just object-centered. Um, some people come to this exhibit. We just recently opened it, and we hope folks who weren't at the opening can come out and see it. Um, we At the opening, we had folks who were very interested in um, learning about um, China from the opportunity at the opening to talk to visitors from China. On the other hand, for instance, there were quilters from Bloomington who came out, and we know why they were there. They wanted to see a new kind of quilt, yeah. and they wanted to get inspired mm-hmm. for their own making, and we just watched them. They're already on the first day <laughs> making sketches and taking photos because, you know, we're going to be seeing next year a quilt craze in Bloomington in which everyone has China-esque, you know, American quilts. And that's great. I mean, that's yeah. um, that's okay. Yes. Um, yeah. The 
how does the museum um, succeed in its ambitions in a world in which there's so much distraction and mm-hmm. competition and right. media and whatnot? We do get visitors at our museum who come for the objects. We have them who folks who come for the contextualized exhibit. But there are people, um, I think you're a voice for them, um, who who are people first and they want to walk into a room knowing that there's going to be an activity or a, an opportunity for dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, we have tried to um, organize events that bring people who are event-centered and people-centered in. We hope that after they enjoy the the conversation or the the discussion or the lecture um, that they can then also take in the exhibit. Um, for this, for China, um, this spring, um, when this show will first air, um, is a is a big time at Indiana University because our campus as a whole has committed to a special focus. It's called China Remixed. Hmm. So at IU during the spring um, of uh, 2017, um, Bloomington will have an opportunity to engage with China in a very diverse way, from the most contemporary arts to the most traditional, um, from newsmakers and politicians, uh, political critics, people who see China through an international lens, the Chinese diaspora. Um, there'll be a host of events on campus, and most of those events are are um, face-to-face with people, either performers on stage or um, newsmakers asking, answering and asking questions. Um, so uh, right. the, our museum is a piece of a larger um, effort this year. Um, a larger effort within, for instance, the American Folklore Society and China Folklore Society's efforts, but also in a Bloomington and IU context. Um, so we hope that um, the exhibit contributes um, but we also hope that um, that we're providing a diversity of ways to engage. Whatever their interests might be and wherever they work, I mean, whether it's in a museum or a, or a department at a university or a performing arts center, folklorists fundamentally are, are educators, mm-hmm. as you can see mm-hmm. and, and know already. Um, and so uh, people in our field try hard to, to present a number of different sort of ways into understanding a, a work of art or a person or a, or a mm-hmm. culture or the ways they all uh, interact and nest together in a home. I mean, it's certainly it's certainly true that objects speak. I mean, an object on a wall or an object in a case, you know, can speak on its own. But there's, you know, there's more to the story than just what the object can say. So that let me ask you. Uh, um, I sort of skip past the the aspect of of cultural exchange from your per- personal perspective as well at the, at the beginning. So yeah. if I look up Tim uh, in Google Images, I see you in China around tables, and and so <laughs> yes, what, that's what that's what I do. In China. <laughs> so, so you know, I wanted to just uh, I guess ask you about uh, the response to the China uh, from the Chinese Folklore Society and how they are perceiving this exchange as well, if that's possible? Sure. Well, we've been working, as I think I said at the beginning of of our talk, uh, the American Folklore Society has been working with the China Folklore Society since 2007, so Mm -hmm. we're coming up on on, on 10 years later. Now, is that a, an official designation then, too, versus your being a kind of an independent entity of a sorts, right, being the American Folklore Society? Is, oh. a, what's, is, there a, is it an independent organization in China, it, or is it a, is a governmental organization? No, it's an independent organization. I mean, it, it has connections, just as we have connections sure, to IU sure. as our institutional host. Okay. The primary institutional host right now of the China Folklore Society, and it's been in part because the current president and the last president worked there, mm. is the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, which is in, in central Beijing, which is kind of a combination of a national endowment for the humanities uh, and a graduate school and a think tank okay. in the humanities. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been working with them for about 10 years. Um, 
they, the Chinese approached us originally at a time when our board was really interested in expanding our, our engagements abroad. Uh, and we started our work by spending three or four years just sending delegations back and forth to one another's conferences and uh, meetings and so on. Uh, I mean, we kind of did this out of our own pockets, out of our own budgets. Uh, and it, and the, I mean, the field of folklore studies in China is growing very fast right now. Uh, a very large number of academic programs and uh, universities across China, and of course this whole intangible cultural heritage mm-hmm. movement we've been talking about, which has been uh, a, a sort of opportunity and challenge for folklorists uh, in China to get engaged in. Folklorists in China are very interested in how we do our work. Uh, our intellectual tradition is somewhat less unbroken than is the case in China. One thing that China had that we didn't have was the Great Leap Forward mm-hmm. and the Cultural mm-hmm. Revolution. I mean, you, you know, the senior people in you know in folklore studies or in any academic field in China, mm-hmm. uh, you know, were young people at the time of the Cultural Revolution and saw a period. I mean, it's hard for us in the U.S. to imagine where you know all universities were closed down, libraries were destroyed, museums were destroyed. Right. We we haven't had anything like that. It's it's. Uh, uh, the the fact that that Chinese uh, sort of cultural life you know sort of found a way of c- continuing even covertly through that time is mm. pretty amazing. Mm. So the point is we each have a lot to learn from one another, uh, and so we ultimately were able to build on those exchanges by having sort of conferences and more elaborate events and allowing people to spend longer periods of time together. Uh, the grant that we have uh, that helped to support this project was the second grant that we got from the Luce Foundation to support this. I'm happy to say there's a third grant, okay. uh, which um, just started this month hmm. uh, and it, uh, and related to this exhibition. It, uh, it has two big parts, and one of the big parts is a continuation of the relationship among these museums. Okay. And there'll be a, a lot of uh, uh, sort of field research and textile traditions, hmm. once again, in southwestern China because it's such a, uh, such a rich area. Hmm. So each time we've... Uh, gone from grant to grant and from project to project, we tried to sort of deepen the relationship, made it make it possible for more people on both sides of the equation, China and the U.S., to spend more and more productive time together. Great. Well, thanks to our guests, Lee Jun Zhang, uh, Tim Lloyd, and Jason Jackson Baird for joining us today to discuss the Quilts of Southwest China, an exhibit that is currently being hosted by the Mathers Museum of World Culture at Indiana University. Thanks to you all for joining us. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Our music to end the program focuses on the Zhao, a Chinese vertical inblown flute. It's generally made of bamboo. The Zhao is usually thought to have developed from a simple inblown flute used by the Qiang people of southwest China. Next time on Interchange, the first of several shows on Cuba, Jose Marti, Castro and Che, the revolution, gangsterismo, and the arts, particularly literature, film, and music. We'll begin with music. We'll be joined by author Ned Sublet, whose book, Cuba and Its Music, From the First Drums to the Mambo, has been called a major work of social history and a fascinating story of how music is shaped by economics, politics, and culture, and how it becomes a force of its own. 
It offers a behind-the-scenes examination of music from a Cuban point of view, unearthing surprising, provocative connections and making a case for Cuba as fundamental to the evolution of music in the New World. Revealed are how the music of black slaves transformed 16th century Europe and how Cuban music influenced ragtime, jazz, and rhythm and blues. Cuba and its music, next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 5.30 on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer and editor and also our board engineer for this episode. Joe Crawford is executive producer. Stay tuned for Counterspin. Coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.